Chapter Three of High Adventure: A Narrative of Air Fighting in France by James Norman Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. High Adventure: A Narrative of Air Fighting in France by James Norman Hall. Chapter Three. By the Route of the Air. The winter of 1916 and 17 was the most prolonged and bitter that France had known in many years. It was a trying period to the little group of Americans assembled at École Militaire d'Aviation, eager as they were to complete their training and to be ready when spring should come, to share in the great offensive, which they knew would then take place on the Western Front. Aviation is a waiting game at the best of seasons. In winter it is a series of seemingly endless delays. Day after day, the plain on the high plateau overlooking the old city of V was storm-swept, a forlorn and desolate place, as we looked at it from our windows, watching the flocks of crows as they beat up against the wind, or as they turned and were swept with it over our barracks, crying and calling derisively to us as they passed. Birdmen, you call yourselves, they seem to say. Then come on up, the weather's fine. Well, they knew that we were impostors, fair-weather flyers, who dared not accept their challenge. It is strange how vague and shadowy my remembrance is of those long weeks of inactivity, when we were dependent for employment and amusement on our own devices. To me, there was a quality of unreality about our life at B., our environment was, no doubt, partly responsible for this feeling, although we were not far distant from Paris, less than an hour by train. The country round about our camp seemed to be quite cut off from the rest of the world, with the exception of our Sunday afternoons of leave, when we joined the boulevardiers in town. We lived a life as remote and clustered as that of some brotherhood of monks in an inaccessible monastery. That is how it appeared to me although, here again, I am in danger of making it seem that my own impressions were those of all the others. This, of course, was not true. The spirit of the place appealed to us, individually in wildly different ways, and upon some, perhaps, it had no effect at all. Sometimes we spent our winter afternoons of enforced leisure in long walks through country roads, which lay empty to the eye for miles. They gave one a sense of loneliness, which colored thought not in any sentimental way, but in a manner very natural and real. The war was always in the background of one's musings, and though we were far removed from actual contact with it, every depopulated country village brought to mind the sacrifice which France has made for the cause of all freedom-loving nations. Every roadside café, long barren of its old patronage, was an evidence of the completeness of the sacrifice. Americans, for the most part, are of an unconquerably healthy cast of mind. But there were few of us who could frequent these places light-heartedly. Paris was our emotional storehouse, to use Kipling's term, during the time we were at B. We spent our Sunday afternoons there, mingling with the crowds on the boulevards, or in pleasant weather sitting outside the cafés, watching the soldiers of the world go by. The streets were filled with 
permissionaires from all parts of the western front, and there were many of those despised of all the rest, embusques, as they were called, who held comfortable billets in safe places well back of the lines. It was very easy to distinguish them from the men newly arrived from the trenches, in whose eyes one saw the look of wonder, almost of unbelief, that there was still a goodly world to be enjoyed. It was often beyond the pathetic to see them trying to satisfy their need for all the wholesome things of life in a brief seven days of leave, to see the family parties at the modest restaurants on the side streets, making merry in a kind of forced way, as if every one were thinking of the brevity of the time for such enjoyment. Scarcely a week went by without bringing one or two additional recruits to the Franco-American Corps. We wondered why they came so slowly. There must have been thousands of Americans who would have been not only willing but glad to join us, and yet the opportunities for doing so had been made widely known. For those who did come, this was the legitimate by-product of glorious adventure and a training in aviation not to be surpassed in Europe. This was to be had by any healthy young American, almost for the asking, but our numbers increased very gradually from fifteen to twenty-five until by the spring of 1917 there were fifty of us at the various aviation schools of France. Territorially, we represented at least a dozen states from the Atlantic to the Pacific. There were rich men's sons and poor men's sons among our number, the sons of very old families, and those who neither knew nor cared what their antecedents were. The same was true of our French comrades, for membership in the French Air Service is not based upon wealth or family position or political influence. The policy of the government is as broad and democratic as may be. Men are chosen because of an aptitude that promises well, or as a reward for distinguished service at the front. A few of the French invalides pilots had been officers, but most of them NCOs and private soldiers in infantry or artillery regiments. This very wide latitude in choice at first seemed laxitude to some of us Americans, but evidently experience in training war pilots and the practical results obtained by these men at the front have been proof enough for the French authorities of the folly of setting rigid standards, making hard and fast rules to be met by prospective aviators. As our own experience increased, we saw the wisdom of a policy which is more concerned with a man's courage, his self-reliance, and his powers of initiative than with his ability to work out theoretical problems in aerodynamics. There are many French pilots with excellent records of achievement in war-flying, who have but a sketchy knowledge of motor and aircraft construction. Some are college-bred men, but many more have only a common school education. It is not at all strange that this should be the case, for one may have had no technical training worth mentioning. One may have only a casual speaking acquaintance with motors, and a very imperfect idea of why and how one is able to defy the law of gravity, and yet prove his worth as a pilot in what is, after all, the best possible way, by his record at the front. A judicious amount of theoretical instruction is, of course, not wanting in the aviation schools of France, but its importance is not exaggerated. We Americans, with our imperfect knowledge of the language, lost the greater part of this. The handicap was not a serious one, and I think I may truthfully say that we kept pace with our French comrades. 
The most important thing was to gain actual flying experience, and as much of it as possible. Only in this way can one acquire a sensitive ear to motors, and an accurate sense of flying speed, the feel of one's machine in the air. These are of the greatest importance. Once the pilot has developed the airman's sixth sense, he need not, and never does, worry about the scantiness of his knowledge of the theory of flight. Sometimes the winds would die away and the thick clouds lift, and we would go joyously to work on a morning of crisp, bright winter weather. Then we had moments of glorious revenge upon the crows. They would watch us from afar, holding noisy indignation meetings in a row of weather-beaten trees at the far side of the field. And when some inexperienced pilot lost control of his machine and came crashing to earth, they would take the air in a body, circling over the wreckage, cawing and jeering with the most evident delight. The Oriental Wrecking Company, as the Ammonites were called, were on the scene almost as quickly as our enemies, the crows. They were a familiar sight on every working day, chattering together in their high-pitched gutturals as they hauled away the wrecked machines. They appeared to side with the birds, and must have thought us the most absurd of men, making wings for ourselves, and always coming to grief when we tried to use them. We made progress regardless of all this skepticism. It was necessarily slow, for beginners at a single-command monoplane school are permitted to fly only under the most favorable weather conditions. Even then, old Mother Earth, who is not kindly disposed towards those of her children who leave her so jauntily, would clutch us back to her bosom, whenever we gave her the slightest opportunity, with an embrace that was anything but tender. We were inclined to think rather highly of our own courage in defying her, and sometimes our vanity was increased by our monitors. After an exciting misadventure, they often gave expression to their relief at finding an amateur pilot still whole, by praising his presence of mind in too generous French fashion. We should not have been so proud, I think, of our own exploits, had we remembered those of the pioneers in aviation, so many of whom lost their lives in experiment with the first crude types of the heavier-than-air machines. They were pioneers in the fine and splendid meaning of the word men to be compared in spirit with the old fifteenth-century navigators. We were but followers, adventuring in comparative safety along a well-defined trail. This, at any rate, was Drew's opinion. He would never allow me the pleasure of indulging in any flights of fancy over these trivial adventures of ours. He would never let me set them off against the heroic background of Paris. As for Paris, he saw nothing of war there, he would say, except the lighter side, the homecoming, leave-enjoying side. We needed to know more of the horror and the tragedy of it. We needed to keep that close and intimate to us as a right perspective for our future adventures. He believed it to be our duty as aviators to anticipate every kind of experience which we might have to meet at the front. His imagination was abnormally vivid. Once he discussed the possibility of falling in flames, which is so often the end of an airman's career. I shall never again be able to take the same whole-hearted delight in flying that I did before he was so horribly eloquent upon the subject. He often speculated upon one's emotions in falling in a machine damaged beyond the possibility of control. I tried to imagine it. 
he would say. Your gasoline tanks have been punctured, and half of your fuselage has been shot away. You believe that there is not the slightest chance for you to save your life. What are you going to do? Lose your head and give up the game? No, you've got to attempt the impossible, and so on, and so forth. I would accuse him of being morbid. Furthermore, I saw no reason why we should plan for terrible emergencies which might never arrive. His answer was that we were military pilots in training for combat machines. We had no right to ignore the grimness of the business ahead of us. If we did, so much the worse for us when we would go to the front. But beyond this practical interest, he had a great curiosity about the nature of fear, and a great dread of it, too. He was afraid that in some last adventure in which death came slowly enough for him to recognize it, he might die like a terror-stricken animal, and not bravely as a man should. We did not often discuss these gruesome possibilities, although this was not Drew's fault. I would not listen to him, and so we would be silent about them until, convinced that the furtherance of our careers as airmen demanded additional pleasant imaginings. There was something of the Hindu fanatic in him, or perhaps it was the outcropping of the stern spirit of his New England forebearers. But when he talked of the pleasant side of the adventure before us, it was more than compensation for all the rest. Then he would make me restless and impatient, for I did not have his faculty of enjoyment in anticipation. The early period of training, when we were flying only a few meters above the ground, seemed endless. At last came the event which really marked the beginning of our careers as airmen, the first tour de piste, the first flight around the aerodrome. We had talked of this for weeks, but when at last the day for it came, our enthusiasm had waned. We were eager to try our wings and yet afraid to make the start. This first tour de piste was always the occasion for a gathering of the Americans, and there was the usual assembly present. The beginners were there to shiver in anticipation of their own forthcoming trials, and the more advanced pilots, who had already taken the leap, to offer gratuitous advice. Now don't try to pull any big league stuff. Not too much rudder on the turns. Remember how that Frenchman piled up on the Farman hangars when he tried to bank the corners? You'll find it pretty rotten when you go over the woods. The air currents there are something scandalous. Believe me, it's a lot worse over the fort, Rupp. Ooh, la, la. And that's where you have to cut your motor and dive if you're going to make a landing without hanging up in the telephone wires. When you do come down, don't be afraid to stick her nose forward. Scare the life out of you. That drop will, but you may as well get used to it in the beginning. But wait till we see them redress. Where's the Oriental wrecking gang? Don't let that worry you, Drew. Pancaking isn't too bad. None of them'll be right. Just like falling through a shingle roof. Can't hurt yourself much. If you do spill, make it a good one. There hasn't been a decent smash-up today. These were the usual comforting assurances. They did not frighten us much, although there was just enough truth in the warnings to make us uneasy. We took our hazing as well as we could inwardly, and, of course, with the imperturbable calm outwardly. But to make a confession, I was somewhat reluctant to hear the business-like Elise en route of the Monitor. When it came, I taxied across to the other side of the field, turned into the wind, and came racing back full motor. It seemed a thing of tremendous power. 
that little forty-five horsepower Anzani. The roar of it stuck awe into my soul, and I gripped the controls in no very professional manner. Then, when I had gathered full ground speed, I eased her off gently, and up we went, over the class and the assembled visitors above the hangars, the lake, the forest, until, at the halfway point, my altimeter registered three hundred and fifty meters. Out of the corner of my eye I saw all the beautiful countryside spread out beneath me, but I was too busy occupied to take in the prospect. I was watching my wings nervously in order to anticipate and counteract the slightest pitch of the machine, but nothing happened, and I soon realized that this first grand tour was not going to be nearly so bad as we had been led to believe. I began to enjoy it. I even looked down over the side of the fuselage, although it was a very hasty glance. All the time I was thinking of the rapidly approaching moment when I should have to come down. I knew well enough how the descent was to be made. It was very simple. I had only to shut off my motor, push forward with my broomstick, the control connected to the elevating planes, and then wait and redress gradually. Beginning at from six to eight meters from the ground, the descent would be exciting, a little more rapid than shooting the chutes. Only one could not safely hold on to the sides of the car and await the splash. That sort of thing had sometimes been done in aeroplanes by overexcited pilots. The results were disastrous, without exception. The moment for the decision came. I was above the fort. Otherwise, I should not have known when to dive. At first the sensation was, I imagine, exactly that of falling, feet foremost. But after pulling back slightly on the controls, I felt the machine answer to them, and the uncomfortable feeling passed. I brought up on the ground in the usual bumpy manner of the beginner. Nothing gave way, however, so this did not spoil the fine rapture of a rare moment. It was shared, at least it was pleasant to think so, by my old Anamite friend of the penguin experience, who stood by his flag, nodding his head at me. He said, Bon," showing his polished black teeth in an approving grin. I forgot for the moment that Boku Bon was his ignoble comment upon all occasions, and that he would have grinned just as broadly had he been dragging me out from a mass of wreckage. Drew came in a few moments later, making an almost perfect landing. In the evening we walked to a neighboring village, where we had a wonderful dinner to celebrate the end of our apprenticeship. It was a curious feast. We had little to say to one another, or better, we were both afraid to talk. We were under an enchantment which words would have broken. After a silent meal, we walked all the way home without speaking. We started off together on our triangles. That was in April just past, so that I have now brought this casual diary almost up to date. We were then at the great school of aviation at A, in central France, where, for the first time, we were associated with men in training for every branch of aviation service and became familiar with other types of French machines. But the brevet test, which every pilot must pass before he becomes a military aviator, were the same in every department of the school. The triangles were two cross-country flights of 200 kilometers each, three landings to be made en route, and each flight to be completed within 48 hours. In addition, there were two short voyages of 60 kilometers each. These preceded the triangular tests, 
and an hour of flight at a minimum altitude of sixty-five hundred feet. The short voyages gave us a delightful foretaste of what was to come. We did them both one afternoon, and were at the hangars at five o'clock on the following morning, ready to make an early start. A fresh wind was blowing from the northeast, but the brevet monitor, who went up for a short flight to try the air, came back with the information that it was quite calm at twenty-five hundred feet. We might start, he said, as soon as we liked. Drew, in his joy, embraced the old woman who kept a coffee stall at the hangars, while I danced a one-step with a mechanician. Neither of them was surprised at this procedure. They were accustomed to such emotional outbursts on the part of aviators, who, by the very nature of their calling, were always in the depths of despair or on the furthest jutting peak of some mountain of delight. Our departure had been delayed day after day for more than a week because of the weather. We were so eager to start that we would willingly have gone off in a blizzard. During the week of waiting, we had studied our map until we knew the location of every important road and railroad, every forest, river, canal, and creek within a radius of one hundred kilometers. We studied it at close range, on a table, and then on the floor, with the compass points properly oriented so that we might see all the important landmarks with the birdman's eye. We knew our course so well that there seemed no possibility of our losing direction. Our military papers had been given us several days before. Among these was an official-looking document to be presented to the mayor of any town or village near which we might be compelled to land. It contained an extract from the law concerning aviators and the duty towards them of the civilian and military authorities. In another was an itemized list of the amounts which might be extracted by farmers for damage to growing crops. So much for an attarishage in a field of sugar beets, so much for wheat, etc. Besides these, we had a book of detailed instructions as to our duty in case of emergencies of every conceivable kind, among others the course of action to be followed if we should be compelled to land in an enemy country at first sight. This seemed an unnecessary precaution, but we remembered the experience of one of our French comrades at B, who started confidently off on his first cross-country flight. He lost his way and did not realize how far astray he had gone until he found himself under fire from German anti-aircraft batteries on the Belgian front. The most interesting paper of all was our order de service, the text of which was as follows. It is commanded that the bearer of this order report himself at the cities of C and R by the route of air flying an avion caldron and leaving the École Militaire d'Aviation at A on the 21st of April, 1917, without passenger on board. Signed, Le Commandant, Captain d'Alcole, Capitan B. We read this with feelings which must have been nearly akin to those of Columbus on a memorable day in 1492, when he received his clearance papers from Cadiz by the route of the air. How the imagination lingered over that phrase! We had the better of Columbus there, although we had to admit that there was more glamour in the hazard of his adventure and the uncertainty of his destination. Drew was ready first. I helped him into his fur-lined combination and strapped him to his seat. A moment later he was off. I watched him as he gathered height over the aerodrome. Then, finding that his motor was running satisfactorily, 
he struck out in an easterly direction, his machine growing smaller and smaller until it vanished in the early morning haze. I followed immediately afterward, and had a busy ten minutes being buffeted this way and that, until, as the brevet monitor had foretold, I reached quiet air at twenty-five hundred feet. This was my first experience in passing from one air current to another. It was a unique one, for I was still a little incredulous. I had not entirely lost my old boyhood belief that the wind went all the way up. I passed over the old cathedral town of B at 1,500 meters. Many a pleasant afternoon had we spent walking through its narrow crooked streets or lounging on the banks of the canal. The cathedral, too, was a favorite haunt. I loved the fine spaciousness of it. Looking down on it now, it seemed no larger than a toy cathedral in a toy town, such as one sees in the shops of Paris. The streets were empty, for it was not yet seven o'clock. Strips of shadow crossed them where taller roofs cut off the sunshine. A toy train, which I could have put nicely into my fountain pen case, was pulling into a station no larger than a wren's house. The Greeks called their gods derisive. No doubt they realized how small they looked to them and how insignificant this little world of affairs must have appeared from high Olympus. There was a road, a fine straight thoroughfare, converging from the left. It led almost due southwest. This was my route to sea. I followed it, climbing steadily until I was at two thousand meters. I had never flown so high before. Over a mile, I thought. It seemed a tremendous altitude. I could see scores of villages and fine old chateaus and great stretches of forest and miles upon miles of open country in checkered patterns, just beginning to show the first fresh green of the early spring crops. It looked like a world planned and laid out by the best of Santa Clauses for the eternal delight of all good children. And for untold generations, only the birds have had the privilege of seeing and enjoying it from the wing. Small wonder that they sing. As for non-musical birds, well, they all sing after a fashion, and there is no doubt that crows, at least, are extremely jealous of their prerogative of flight. My biplane was flying itself. I had nothing to do other than to give occasional attention to the revolution counter, altimeter, and speed dial. The motor was running with perfect regularity. The propeller was turning over at 1,200 revolutions per minute without the slightest fluctuation. Flying is the simplest thing in the world, I thought. Why doesn't everyone travel by route of the air? If people knew the joy of it, the exhilaration of it, aviation schools would be overwhelmed with applicants. Biplanes of the Farman and Vison type would make excellent family cars, quite safe for women to drive. Mothers, busy with household affairs, could tell their children to run out and fly a caldron such as I was driving, and feel not the slightest anxiety about them. I remember an imaginative drawing I had once seen of aerial activity in 1950. Even house pets were granted the privilege of traveling by the air route. The artist was not far wrong except in his date. He should have put it at 1925. On a fine April morning there seemed no limit to the realization of such interesting possibilities. I had no more than started my southwest course, as it seemed to me when I saw the spires of the red-roofed houses of sea, 
and a kilometer or so from the outskirts, the barracks and hangars of the aviation school where I was to make the first landing. I reduced the gas, and, with the motor purring gently, began a long, gradual descent. It was interesting to watch the change in the appearance of the country beneath me as I lost height. Checkerboard patterns of brown and green grew larger and larger. Shining threads of silver became rivers and canals. Tiny green shrubs became trees. Individual aspects of houses emerged. Soon I could see people going about the streets and laundry maids hanging out the family washing in the back gardens. I even came low enough to witness a minor household tragedy. A mother vigorously spanking a small boy. Hearing the whir of my motor, she stopped in the midst of the process, whereupon the youngster very naturally took advantage of his opportunity to cut and run for it. Drew doubted my veracity when I told him about this. He called me an aerial eavesdropper and said I ought to be ashamed to go buzzing over towns at such low altitudes, frightening housemaids, disorganizing domestic penal institutions, and generally disturbing the privacy of respectable French citizens. But I was unrepentant, for I knew that one small boy in France was thanking me with joy to have escaped maternal justice with the assistance of an aviator would be an event of glorious memory to him. How vastly more worthwhile such a method of escape, and how jubilant Tom Sawyer would have been over such an opportunity when his horrified warning, Look behind you, aunt! had lost efficiency. Drew had been waiting a quarter of an hour, and came rushing out to meet me as I taxied across the field. We shook hands as though we had not seen each other for years. We could not have been more surprised and delighted if we had met on another planet after long and hopeless wanderings in space. While I superintended the replenishing of my fuel and oil tanks, he walked excitedly up and down in front of the hangars. He was an odd-looking sight in his flying clothes, with a pair of Meyerowitz goggles set back on his head, like another set of eyes, gazing at the sky with an air of wide astonishment. He paid no attention to my critical comments, but started thinking aloud as soon as I rejoined him. It was lonely. Yes, by Jove, that it was. A glorious thing. One's isolation up there. But it was too profound to be pleasant. A relief to get down again, to hear people talk, to feel the solid earth under one's feet. How did it impress you? This was like Drew. I felt ashamed of the lightness of my own thoughts but I had to tell him of my speculation upon the after-the-war developments in aviation. Nurses flying bisons, with the cars filled with babies, old men having after-dinner naps in twenty-three-meter nearports, fitted for safety with sperry gyroscopes, family parties taking comfortable outings in gigantic biplanes of the R-6 type, mothers as of old gazing apprehensively at speed dials cautioning fathers about driving too fast, and all the rest. Drew looked at me reprovingly to be sure, but felt the need, just as I did, of an outlet to his feelings, and so he turned to this kind of comic relief with the most delightful reluctance. He quickly lost his resolve, and in the imaginative spree which followed he went far beyond the last outpost of absurdity. We laughed over our own wit until our faces were tired. However, I will not be explicit about our folly. It might not be so amusing from a critical point of view. After our papers have been viseed at the office of the Commandant, we hurried back to our machines, eager to be away again. We were to make our second landing at R. 
This was about seventy kilometers distant and almost due north. The mere name of the town was an invitation. Somewhere in one of the novels of William J. Locke may be found this bit of dialogue. But, Master, said I, there is, after all, color in words. Don't you remember how delighted you were with the name of a little town we passed through on the way to Orleans? R. You were haunted by it, and said it was like the purple note of an organ. We were haunted by it, too, for we were going to that very town. We would see it long before our arrival, a cluster of quaint old houses lying in the midst of pleasant fields, with roads curving toward it from the north and south, as though they were glad to pass through so delightful a place. Drew was for taking a leisurely route to the eastward, so that we might look at some village which lay some distance off our course. I wanted to fly by compass in a direct line without following my map very closely. We had planned to fly together, and were more than eager to do this because of an argument we had had about the relative speed of our machines. He was certain that his was faster. I knew that with mine I could fly circles around him. As we were not able to agree on the course, we decided to postpone the race until we started on our homeward journey. Therefore, after we had passed over the town, he waved his hand, bent off to the northeast, and was soon out of sight. I kept straight on, climbing steadily until I was again at five thousand feet. As before, my motor was running perfectly, and I had plenty of leisure to enjoy the always new sensation of flight and to watch the wide expanse of magnificent country as it moved slowly past. I let my mind lie fallow, and even now and then I would find it hauling out fragments of old memories which I had forgotten that I possessed. I recalled for the first time in many years my earliest interpretations of the meanings of all the phenomena of the heavens. Two old janitor saints had charge of the floor of the skies. One of them was a jolly old man who liked boys, and always kept the sky swept clean and blue. The other took sour delight in shirking his duties, so that it might rain and spoil all our fun. Perhaps it was Drew's sense of loneliness and helplessness so far from earth, which made him think of winds and clouds in friendly human terms. However that may be, these reveries, hardly worthy of a military airman, were abruptly broken into. All at once I realized that while my biplane was headed due north, I was drifting north and west. This seemed strange. I puzzled over it for some time, and then brilliantly, in the manner of the novice, deducted the reason. Wind. I was being blown off my course, all the while comfortably certain that I was flying in a direct line towards R. Our monitors had often cautioned us against being comfortably certain about anything while in the air. It was our duty to be uncomfortably alert. Wind. I wonder how many times we had been told to keep it in mind at all times, whether on the ground or in the air. And here I was, forgetting the existence of wind on the very first occasion. The speed of my machine and the current of air from the propeller had deceived me into thinking that I was driving dead into whatever breeze there was at that altitude. I discovered that it was blowing out of the east, Therefore I headed a quarter into it, to overcome the drift, and looked for landmarks. I had not long to search. Wisps of mist obstructed the view, and within ten minutes a bank of solid cloud cut it off completely. I had only a vague notion of my location with reference to my course, but I could not persuade myself to come down just then. 
to be flying in the full splendor of bright April sunshine, knowing that all the earth was in shadow, gave me a feeling of exhilaration, for there is no sensation like that of flight, no isolation so complete as that of the airman, who has above him only the blue sky and below a level floor of pure white cloud, stretching in an unbroken expanse towards every horizon. And so I kept my machine headed northeast, that I might regain the ground lost before I discovered the drift northwest. I had made a rough calculation of the time required to cover the seventy kilometers to R, at the speed at which I was traveling. The rest I left to chance, the godfather of all adventurers. He took the initiative, as he so frequently does with aviators, who, in moments of calm weather, are inclined to forget that they are still children of earth. The floor of dazzling white cloud was broken and tumbled into heaped-up masses which came drifting by at various altitudes. They were scattered at first and offered splendid opportunities for aerial steeplechasing. Then, almost before I was aware of it, they surrounded me on all sides. For a few minutes I avoided them by flying in curves and circles in rapidly vanishing pools of blue sky. I feared to take my first plunge into a cloud, for I knew by report what an alarming experience it is to the new pilot. The wind was no longer blowing steadily out of the east. It came in gusts from all points of the compass. I made a hasty revision of my opinion as to the calm and tranquil joys of aviation, thinking of what fools men are who willingly leave the good green earth and trust themselves to all the winds of heaven in a frail box of cloth-covered sticks. The last clear space grew smaller and smaller. I searched for an outlet, but the clouds closed in, and in a moment I was hopelessly lost in a blanket of cold, drenching mist. I could hardly see the outlines of my machine, and had no idea of my position with reference to the earth. In the excitement of this new adventure I forgot the speed dial, and it was not until I heard the air screaming through the wires that I remembered it. The indicator had leapt up fifty kilometers an hour, above safety speed, and I realized that I must be traveling earthward at a terrific pace. The manner of the descent became clear at the same moment. As I rolled out of the cloud bank, I saw the earth jauntily tilted up on one rim, looking like a gigantic enlargement of a page of Peter Newell's slant book. I expected to see dogs and dishpans, baby carriages and ash barrels roll out of every house in France and go clattering off into space. End of chapter 3